Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to our new message series today called Emotions. Subtitle is You Are Not What You Feel. And for the next few weeks together, we're going to be thinking about our feelings. And more importantly, we're going to be asking what God's word says about them, what he teaches us about them. And, you know, I think we all recognize that we live in an age of feeling. You know, most people today, they believe that how and what we feel really is at the core of the true essence of who we are. We define ourselves by our feelings. And many of us, we make life-altering decisions by our feelings. And it's kind of interesting to me, our feelings have become so central to how we see the world. And maybe you've noticed this too. Many times when we are asked what we think about something, we will respond by saying, well, I feel that, instead of saying, I think that. Many of us, we just live at the mercy of our feelings. Our, our feelings control us. We, we, we see our emotions as something that, that, that happens to us, something that we are powerless to resist. And in fact, I think many of us believe that, quote, being true to ourselves, like that's the greatest thing that we can aspire to. And most people who say that, they define being true to themselves by what they feel. On the other hand, there are some of us, well, we just don't like our feelings. Our, our feelings confuse us, and we really don't even want to think about our feelings. Um, we, we just see them as mostly bad. Um, sometimes as Christians, we, we tend to think that our feelings are bad, and, and so we often deny those feelings. We run from those feelings, and you know, our culture, which is therapeutic to the core, usually tries to help us here, and they just tell us we should uh, not feel bad feelings. We just should not have them. What we're going to see over these next few weeks is that God's word teaches us something very different than our, our therapeutic culture. God's word shows us that our feelings matter. They, they really do, so we shouldn't deny them. Uh, they are often our feelings. They're often an expression of God's design, but they're not meant to define us. They're not meant to control us. On the other hand, God's word shows us that we're not going to deny our feelings, but we should engage those feelings, and we should learn what our feelings tell us about our hearts and about our relationship with God and about our relationship with other people. See, over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is working together on learning how God's truth should define us, not our feelings. And we're going to be talking about how, how, how can we bring our feelings into alignment with God's word. And I, I think as we do this, um, maybe in a new way for some of us, we're gonna see that emotions really are a gift from God and emotions really are crucial to becoming more like Jesus. And today we're gonna start uh, with a big one. It's kind of the heaviest emotion of all. It's the emotion, the feeling of guilt. What does God's word teach us about feeling guilty? We're gonna do this by studying Psalm 32. And I want us to begin by reading that psalm, God's word. It's written by King David. It's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. If you have a copy of the scriptures, open them. If you don't, they're gonna be on the screen. Here is what David writes. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, amen, amen. Back in 2004, a man named Frank Warren was a volunteer at a suicide prevention hotline down in Southern California, and he he listened uh, over the time he was serving just to dozens and dozens of people who would call in, and they were just desperate, they were hopeless, they were ready to take their own lives. And he discovered in call after call that these people would do essentially the same thing. They would, in the course of the conversation, reveal to him a total stranger secrets that they had never admitted to anyone else. And he discovered that most of the time, once they had unburdened themselves of their secret, they were no longer suicidal. They, they felt much better. And so Frank started to think, what if there was a way that people could share their secrets anonymously before they got to the point of you know, thinking about taking their own lives? So he started a blog, he called it Post Secret, and he invited people to put their secrets on a postcard and mail it in, and he would post them anonymously on the blog. It, it grew and grew. He, he now has a, a, an Instagram page where he does this almost a half a million followers, and after having this idea in 2004, you know, wondering if anybody would ever respond, he has now seen over one million postcards that people have sent in with their, their secrets on them. Now, on some of these postcards, the, 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 the secrets that people confess to are, are really, really heavy sins. Some of them are almost humorous, and yet these are all secrets that have really haunted these people. I'll, I'll show you a few of them. Here's one. Uh, Grandma sent you a card too. I just made it look like she forgot about you so I could have the money inside. How about this one? I work in a government office, and when I get work I don't want to do, I shred it. Show, show of hands, how many of, you, how many of you are thinking, it's just as I suspected? <laughs> this one comes from a teacher. I, I made a student repeat a grade so I could flirt with his father for one more year. Some of you are thinking right now, that's why I got held back. That's the only reason it could have happened to me. Um, <laughs> Here's one. I hate doing dishes so much that sometimes I just throw them in the garbage and buy new ones. And then look at this last one. I just want to find someone who will still love me after I've shared all of my secrets. What this blog um, tells us and shows us is that we all deal with guilty consciences at, at different times in our life. And, uh, lives, and no, one, no one wants to be burdened by guilt. 
So here's the question today. How can we lift the weight of guilt? Now to do this, I think we need to understand Guilt, first of all, like what is guilt? A lot of people today think that guilt is just this subjective emotion and it you know, requires therapy. In other words, guilt isn't real. A lot of people operate like this. It's, it's just this product they think of, of you know, a religion or maybe cultural expectations or maybe it's just your family upbringing or, or maybe you know, it's just your own neuroses. But is that true? Is guilt just a subjective feeling? Or is there something we call guilt that's real, that's objective, that's something that we actually need to deal with? Maybe, maybe some of you are here today and, and you, you, you know, maybe you haven't come that often. Maybe it's your first time and you find yourself thinking, you know, guilt, that's like something Christians just specialize in. And why did I have to show up today to talk about, you know, guilt, listen to this? And you know, some of you probably think that Christians, you know, walk around feeling guilty all the time because we hold to these outdated beliefs. We read this ancient book, and you think that like, if we could just, you know, move into the 20th, 21st century, we, we could get over our guilt. It's a pretty interesting thing, living in a culture that doesn't really believe in guilt. Have you noticed how guilty so many people really still are? Our culture has moved farther and farther away from biblical belief in recent decade, and yet, yet our, our modern world hasn't really discovered a way to solve the problem of guilt. There was an article written by a British writer in a magazine uh, uh, some time ago. Her name was Deborah Baum, and she puts it like this. If religion often gets the blame for framing man as a sinner... The secular effort to release man from his guilt has not offered much by way of relief. And I think that's so true. Uh, You might even say the opposite. There's a lot of evidence that in our digital age, the guilt of so many people has actually been amplified. I mean, think of all the effort that people are always trying to put into dealing with their guilt. There's therapists and there's educators and there's authors. There's voices on social media all trying to help us deal with guilt. But honestly, truthfully, like, can we talk? (laughs) It hasn't worked. Guilt hasn't gone away. And so I want to say to you, if you don't already know it, I think many of you do, guilt is an issue we need to face. And, and get honest with yourself. If you look beneath the surface, many of our lives, a lot of our anger, a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our insecurity, it's just driven by our guilt. And maybe you feel that today. Maybe when you look into your own heart, Maybe you recognize that it's guilt that's driving you in your career or maybe in your family relationships, even in your maybe sense of identity. It's just this guilt, guilt you feel. So, so how do we deal with this? How do we find relief from guilt? How do we lift the weight of guilt? Well, the Psalms, the Psalms are uh, a place we find so much help in understanding and engaging our emotions. And, and there are a number of psalms um, about guilt. This psalm that we've read today, that we're gonna study today, Psalm 32, uh, written by that great ancient King David, it helps us to find guilt, it helps us find a solution to guilt. And I think you're gonna see today, instead of us uh, being weighed down, this psalm shows us how to deal with guilt in a way that actually makes us stronger and better 
than we were before. Psalm 32 helps us in three ways. There's three things you're going to see. You can find these um, on the app if you're taking notes there or you're just writing them down. First, uh, this psalm helps us get clarity on the nature of guilt. Second, it helps us deal with guilt by developing the habit of confession. And third, it helps us to experience God's restoring grace. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. First thing, we're gonna lift the weight of guilt. What do we need to do? Well, we need to get clarity on the nature of guilt. I don't know if you noticed when we read the psalm how it kind of goes up and down and up and down. It, it starts on the up. It, it begins on a triumphant note. Verses one and two again say, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Amen, right? I mean, that's where blessing is. Now, Looking at this, it seems to me that it's so crucial that we get an accurate understanding of guilt because it is possible, and we need to deal with this, it's possible to feel guilty when you're innocent. But it's also possible, and many of us do this, to feel innocent when we're actually guilty. It's the difference between what we might call true guilt and false guilt. And false guilt can come from a lot of different sources. It may come for some of us from the family that we, we grew up in. Maybe it comes from our culture. Maybe it, it comes many times from the enemy. See, our conscience is sometimes misinformed. You know, we live in this culture that says like the, what the rules of the culture, you know, are, then they're changing all the time what's right, what's wrong. That, that can lead to guilt when we don't align with that. But we also know that the Bible tells us we have an enemy and his name is Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And sometimes he brings up things that are true regarding our guilt, but other times he speaks lies. He accuses us accuses us of things we're not guilty of. And he does that because it's his nature. The Bible says he was a liar from the beginning. So it's important to understand the difference between false guilt and true guilt. How, how do we do that? How do I know if the guilt I'm experiencing is, is something that really needs to be dealt with? Now, I'm not gonna be able to go in today into in depth into all the, the causes and solutions to false guilt, but I wanna offer to you clearly and in some depth how we know true guilt, and this is what we're gonna focus on. Psalm 32, King David shows us that God is the standard by which we measure true guilt. This is how we have to begin if we're gonna deal with lifting the weight of guilt. God is the standard by which we measure true guilt. And I want you to notice, if you read these verses carefully, there are three kinds of guilt, three categories of guilt mentioned in the first two verses. We might call them relational guilt and legal guilt and moral guilt. And we see these in the three words David uses to describe guilt. First word is the word transgression. Now, in Hebrew, this word transgression is fundamentally a relational term. It, it, it means at its core a breach of trust. If, if someone has ever betrayed you, you ever been betrayed? If you have ever betrayed someone, have you ever done that? Anytime there's betrayal, there's a breach of trust. That's transgression. If someone's broken their promise to you, if you broke your word to someone else, whenever that happens, you feel it. It's relational. But what David's talking about here is transgression against God. 
See, the Bible says we, we've all transgressed. We've all broken trust with the God who always keeps his promise. And you need to understand this is at the heart of guilt. To understand guilt, we must see that transgression, before it's ever a transgression against a person, it's breaking our relationship with God. And that is at the very heart of the problems that we are always experiencing in our life and in our world. There's transgression going on all the time. There's this breaking of relational trust, and it's primarily, it begins always between people and God. But then the psalmist uses another word, It's the familiar word sin. And this is in Hebrew kind of a a legal term. In Hebrew as well as in the New Testament, another uh, word, a Greek word, have the same kind of root meaning. It's this idea of missing the mark. And and you may hear this term legal. That sounds kind of cold and and, and removed, but that's not the way the Bible uses it. When the the Bible talks about God's laws and God's commands, it is always a reflection of God's character and God's good plan for our lives lives. See, his law is always the target. It's always the the standard by which he calls us to live lives that lead to flourishing. In other words, live lives that that lead to our, our good. And whenever we fall short of that, we contradict it and we are condemned by it. It's sin. And then there's a third word, or category. The word here in Psalm 32 is iniquity, and this speaks of a moral guilt. It, it describes the twisting and the distortion of God's good creation and the, the standards that He has made. In other words, there are boundaries to how we ought to live our lives. God has set out standards that we, we are to follow. We are to live into those things. There, there's this straight path that God has articulated through his word. And whenever we distort that, whenever we twist that, it's iniquity and we are guilty. And, and David, David knows this reality of guilt so well. The happiness of his opening statement is very different from the agony that he is gonna go on to describe. And, and the reason he can do this is that even though he's a man after God's own heart, the Bible says that multiple times, he was also a man who sinned greatly. David had some significant seasons of living in sin and then seasons where he attempted to hide his sin and bury his guilt over the sin. And and when you understand that this story of of what David has done, most scholars believe this is uh, reference back to his sin with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband and then his cover-up of this sin, which went on for about a year David goes through this kind of guilt that he's gonna describe here. And you know, I think when I read it, and maybe you'll feel this way too, you'll resonate with it because we've all had times, we've all had times that we've tried to ignore or hide or cover up our guilt. In fact, I just kind of feel like I wanna make sure you're with me on this. Anybody ever lived in a time where they've hidden their guilt or buried their guilt or covered up their guilt or lived in denial of their guilt or blamed their guilt on someone else. Anybody at all, raise your hand right now so you don't commit another sin. (laughs) See, we've all been there, so we all should understand what what David is talking about. He kind of gives this personal testimony in verses three and four. He's, He's describing the destructive effect of what happens when you don't deal with the guilt in, our, in your life. Look what he says, verses three and four. When I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I'm gonna give you some words. It won't be on the screen, but maybe you can write these down and think about what David's describing here. Talk about them in your life group. He, he talks about weakness, weakness, when he says my bones wasted away. And then he describes it as a burden. There's weakness and a, a burden. He says, your hand was heavy upon me. He's being weighed down. He, he describes it as discomfort. It's this awareness of God's conviction. And, and then in his attempt to hide and to bury what he feels, he, he describes exhaustion because, would you agree, it is exhausting to live with guilt and just try to always cover it up. He says, my strength was sapped, and I'm gonna paraphrase it for us in Tracy, like a 105 degree July day. You know, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And, and you know, this description is telling us when, when it comes to real and true guilt before God, we might wish that God could ignore it, but he will not, he cannot. He is righteous, he is just, and, and at the same time, he loves us, and so his hand will always be heavy on us that we might awaken to the reality of our sin and the reality of our guilt. In other words, think about this. God will never make you feel good about being guilty because he loves you. God will never do that. And this is the deception of so much that goes on in our our world. So much of our world's counsel attempts to tell us we shouldn't feel guilty without ever trying to discover if we are indeed guilty. God will never make you feel good about being guilty. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And and I wanna just highlight this. God is not primarily concerned with a therapeutic experience of of dealing with guilt like our culture so often is. See, guilt guilt is real and important because it tells us something. It's meant to be a signpost that says, deal with this. Deal with this. So we need to understand the nature of guilt. You know, the reality is everyone is trying to do something about their guilt. And and like David, we can try to deal with it in the wrong way. I wonder if you've ever done any or maybe all of these ways. You can write these down as well. Some of us medicate our guilt. We medicate it. We, We feel guilt. We know we're wrong. It may be something in our relationships or maybe it's lying going on in our life. Maybe it's sexual sin in our lives. Maybe we're breaking promises. Maybe we're abusing substances. Maybe maybe we begin to feel this conviction, this guilt, like this is not right. I should not be doing this. And so we medicate. We just medicate. And medicating comes in a lot of forms. It's just meant to distract us from facing our guilt. I just wanna ask you, are you willing to ask yourself and answer honestly to yourself? That's where it starts. Am I medicating my guilt? Am I medicating it? Another way besides medicating is blame shifting. You know, maybe you feel guilty, but you say, well, I know I've done wrong, but, 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 but look at all the stress I'm under. Look, look at all the pro- problems I'm facing, the pressure, pressure that's in my life life. So there's medicating, there's blame shifting, and then there's comparisons. We compare ourselves to other people who have often fallen short, also fallen short, and we we say things like, well, look at what they've done. I mean, you know, 
I, I, not only am I better than that, I mean, yeah, I did the wrong thing, but I'm better than that, and I'm outraged at them. I'm angry at what they did. It's kind of an interesting thing in our culture today. There's a lot of people who have gotten addicted to being offended. It's even called <laughs> outrage porn. And, and, and people engage in this because it gives us the feeling of feeling righteous. How many times, how many times do we indulge in that feeling, that righteous anger, and the only reason we're doing it is because deep down, truth is, we feel so very guilty. There's a lot of people like, they just like, you know, I'll go online and I'll find someone out there somewhere who's done something wrong and, and it makes me feel better, it makes me feel good. It, it covers up my guilt, but it's not dealing with my guilt. There's another way People often try to deal with guilt, and it's, it's through religion, religiosity. That probably is the most common way in this room, and it kind of works like this. You should feel guilty about this, by the way. <laughs> it works kind of like this. Yeah, I know I've done wrong, but you know what? I'm gonna do like, I don't know, a million good deeds, and I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll, I'll prove things you know, uh, right in my life. I'll somehow get the scales balanced out. And a lot of us try to deal with our guilt that way. I don't know which of these you're tempted to try. I feel like in my own life I've tried them all, but here's the truth. I hope you know it. None of these ways work. And what David is teaching us is that only when we see guilt as fundamentally to do with God will we ever be able to lift the weight of guilt. So first we need to understand what guilt is about, the, the nature of true guilt. But, but it doesn't end here. David is kind of in this psalm taking us on a, a journey that, that tells us once we understand the nature of guilt, we need to respond. And, and the way we respond is with the habit of confession. And so that's the second way we lift the weight of guilt. We need to develop the habit of confession. Do you regularly engage in the confession of your sin? See, it's only confession that leads to the blessing of forgiveness. You might even say this, the bridge between the burden of our guilt and the blessing of forgiveness is confession. See, you just ask anyone, maybe here even, anyone who has passed through the dark tunnel of bearing their own guilt and they've come out on the other side forgiven and they will be the first to tell you of the, the value and of the power of confession. It's actually the turning point in Psalm 32. It's this, this moment when, when David stops and he says, I confess. Verse five says, then, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And this is so important. Why, why? Well, what is confession? I want you to think of it in this way. Two things I wanna highlight from Psalm 32. First, confession is agreeing with God. It's agreeing with God. If the standard by which we measure our guilt is God, God's word, God's law, God's character, then confession, being honest, is agreeing with God. And it's an interesting thing over in the New Testament. Most of the time when you see the word confess, it is a word which in Greek literally means to say the same thing. In other words, to agree with God. And that's what David's talking about here. And notice he doesn't hold back. 
He doesn't hold back. And as a result of his confession, he experiences incredible healing. See, confession, think of it this way, agreeing with God. Confession is acknowledging that I see what God already sees. Have you ever confessed something to God and it's kind of like you're telling him, you think you're telling him something he doesn't already know? Like, he already knows. You're not telling him anything new. Confession is about you getting in line with what God already knows, seeing what God has always seen, what God has always known. And so it's agreeing with God. It's also important to understand as you look at this verse that David's prayer wasn't just a general confession. How many of us pray and we say something, we think confession is, Lord, forgive me all my many sins. It's not a really good prayer, okay? Maybe you could think of it this way. You didn't commit your many sins all at once. You always commit your sins one at a time. And the only way to deal with your sins is to confess them one at a time. Amen? So David, David is, is very specific here. And remembering he's not giving God new information. He's just agreeing with God about something God already knows. Well, what does he agree with God about? Two things we see in this confession. It's personal and it's specific. First, it's personal. Um, some of us are really good about confessing other people's sins. In fact, you know, some of you like to confess your spouse's sins all the time. You'd like to talk about those sins every day. You don't get to confess other people's sins. You take responsibility for your sin, and this is so crucial. Even, even when our sin is impacted by wrong things other people have done, and this happens, it doesn't take away our responsibility to deal with what we have done wrong before God, before other people. And that's how, again, we must understand our guilt. I want to say it again and repeat it. Sin is first and foremost against God. And sometimes I think we're more worried about the sins that impact other people than the sins against God. You're never gonna get right with other people until you get right with God. See, so David's confession is personal and ours should be as well. His confession is also specific and I want you to not just pass this over. It's right there in the text, verse five. Did you notice that he uses in verse five when he confesses the same words that he uses in verse one and two? Same words, Sin, iniquity, transgression. In other words, he's grappling with the nature of his sin. And it's so great. As soon as he confesses, once the cover up is over, the release is immediate. It's immediate. Because confession not only means agreeing with God, the second thing, confession is about receiving from God. And this is so huge. You know, confession to God is, is key to experiencing the blessings of God. Look what happens, and notice how radical this passage is. If you, if you look at the, the psalm, you, you might notice it took eight lines to describe the weight of sin, and then you go back to verse one, and everything is reversed. It's turned upside down. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See, this speaks to the reality of God's forgiveness, and we need to hear this. We need to know this because, because it empowers us to confess our sin and to know what will happen when we do. And what is that? Well, I want you to notice three things in how God forgives. First, when you confess your sin, you need to know that God will forgive you immediately. 
immediately. There is no verse in the Bible where God says, confess your sin and I'll eventually forgive you. I'll get around to it when I have time. It's always immediate. He forgives immediately. He also forgives completely. There was no area that David held back and there was no area where he was not forgiven. God also does not ever say to any one of us, I'll forgive you some of your sins. I think you're kind of up to the 77% range of forgiveness. God forgives completely. He, he forgives completely. Third, he forgives graciously. God's response to confession is not punishment. It is not shame. He doesn't say, I will make you pay. He forgives graciously. It's not due to our sincerity or how hard we confess. And how can a righteous and holy God forgive like this? How can he forgive immediately and completely and graciously? How can he forgive someone like David, you know, someone like me, someone like you? And that's what we see in the gospel. You see, in the gospel, there's just the, there's the promise and the prospect of this in Psalm 32, but there's the fulfillment of the promise in the New Testament. And we read in the New Testament and in the gospel, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die the death on the cross that our sin deserves so that we could know the eternal life that only he deserves, so that we could be forgiven so the weight of guilt could be lifted so that we could be set free. And that's what we, actually, I hope you realize this, that's what we were celebrating, what we were all about at Easter just a couple weeks ago. Because of Jesus' death, because of his resurrection, uh, we can be forgiven. And let me just put it to you this way. I hope you will hear this. You have no good reason not to confess because of what God has done through Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb. No good reason not to confess. It's kind of interesting in the, the flow of this psalm now that David has confessed and received God's forgiveness. He wants other people to know what he knows. And so he calls two people to do what he's done. He, he's calling to you to do what he's done. He's calling to me. In, in verse six, he's, he's ba uh, saying, and basically in light of this that I've learned about God and God's grace and God's forgiveness, therefore, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. And what he really is saying right here, listen, is do not resist conviction. Do not resist conviction. He wants everyone to develop the habit of confession and he wants them to develop it now, soon. There's this urgency that you see in this verse and there's two reasons I, that I think we can highlight for his urgency, two reasons that call us to respond urgently. The first thing that David is saying in this verse is you need to deal with your guilt while you can. See, God is gracious but his grace, hear me, doesn't last forever. Now, it's not that he's gonna change. It's that you will change. You will change in the way that maybe your heart just becomes so hard, you don't hear anymore, you don't see anymore, you won't respond anymore, you cannot presume that you will always be responsive 
to God's call to confess. But there's another thing, and it's just real obvious. You're gonna die, and you don't know when. And so I'm just saying to you, don't wait. Confess while you can. You may not have another opportunity to confess. Do not presume that God's grace will always, always be there for you. Deal with your guilt while you you can while there's still time, while you have a pulse and while your heart is, is still beating, your, your lungs are still breathing, confess you can be forgiven. I, Isaiah 55, verses six and seven, actually two of my favorite verses in the Bible, they say this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. Friends, if anything, the last two years should have taught us is we don't know how long we have. Don't just listen to what you're hearing today and, you know, move on, go home, turn on the TV, resume hiding, keep on burying, pretending, denying. You know, I'm kind of confident that some of you, and I don't know if you're gonna do this literally, but spiritually right now, some of you are like white-knuckling it. It's like, I'm hanging on, not doing it, I can't go there. Sooner or later, this guy up on the stage is gonna quit talking and I can leave. And David says, don't do that. Deal with your guilt while you can. There's another reason, though, that he speaks with such urgency, and that's a a positive reason. He says, when you do, you will experience God's protection. It's an amazing thing. You know, we all face trouble in life, amen? Who's got extra trouble you'd be free and glad to share with some other people? Like, you know, you've got plenty on your own. You've got extras. You can just pass them out. We all face trouble in life, but when we stop running from God, when we stop hiding our guilt, when we stop covering up and denying and excusing and burying, when we finally confess and we come clean, we put ourselves in the place where we can experience the protection of Almighty God. And David is just telling us life's troubled waters will not ultimately consume us. The waters of judgment will not sweep us away. And the reason he can say that is because ultimately on the cross, Jesus Christ took the waters of judgment that we deserve. And so whatever life throws at us, when we're practicing confession and receiving God's forgiveness, we are also simultaneously receiving God's protection from the one thing that can ultimately destroy us. And that is the guilt of our sin. David says, I'm just pleading with you, confess, confess. So I just wanna ask you, what are you, what are you doing with the emotion of guilt? Are, are, are you allowing God's truth to define guilt for you? Do you understand what true guilt is and that it's first and foremost against God and against his, his standards, that it calls for his forgiveness? And now are you taking that and are you developing the habit of confession in your life? Oh, I, I hope you are. 
And if you are, here's what's gonna happen. It's the third thing we're gonna see today. Um, to lift the weight of guilt, we need to experience God's restoring grace because that's what happens after confession. And so beautiful. It just shows us here, these last verses, the heart of our gracious God, us guilty people, we need to see it. God promises that when we take our guilt to him, he forgives us. And more than that, he restores us. See, God, listen, God changes people who trust him with their guilt and seek his forgiveness and grace. He changes us. He doesn't just take the guilt away. In taking the guilt away, we experience restoration. We become different people. And a lot of people, a lot of people, I think, even some of us in this church, maybe, we think that being a Christian, a serious Christian, means, you know, you walk around all the time, head bowed. You know, you gotta be really serious. You gotta always be heavy with guilt. But that has nothing to do with the life that Jesus calls his followers to. We all have guilt No one lives up to the standard of what they value in life. None of us do. But whatever that standard or that source is that that you're trying to live up to, I just want to ask you, will it ever forgive you if you sin against it? You know, maybe some of you, like you're, you're living in this idolatry of your career and you sin against your career. Will your career ever forgive you? Maybe you sin against a real romantic relationship. Can, can you live forever depending on that person you've sinned against to always, always forgive you? And more than that, are, are they gonna be the one who will empower you with everything you need to go on living with a clean conscience? And some of us have tried it, and I just wanna tell you, if you don't know it yet, it never works because God is the true standard. God is the only one who can fully forgive us because God is the only one against whom we have ultimately sinned. But he's also, he's also the one who will protect you and will empower you even when you fail. Think about work. I mean, can you imagine like your work ever doing anything like this? You know, you get onboarded and in the onboarding, they say to you, hey, you know, welcome to the company. When you fail, we will surround you with unfailing love and songs of deliverance. (laughs) Even when you don't get to work on time, even when you don't finish that project, they'll never say that. But God will, right? Some of, some of you, you think that, that talking about guilt in church just sounds really like a burden. No, no. Being uh, restored to God, not being restored to God, not being forgiven, that sounds like an oppressive burden. See, the beauty of the gospel is that it not only is the power to forgive, it's also the power to restore, which means that you become even stronger than you were before. Do you understand that? On the other side of confession is a greater strength, greater strength, new life, restoration. Let me show you this from David's final verses. These are, these are some ways in which God restores us, some ways in which God makes you stronger as you confess sin, as you receive forgiveness. First, you grow in boldness. 
Look at, look at verse seven. David says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, you know, that David's been forgiven. Now, David, he just hears, he hears songs everywhere to trust in God. He says, trusting in God, it's like I'm living in this circle of music. I'm surrounded. It's like, it's like he has this soundtrack in his AirPods and they're playing songs about the deliverance of God. Is that the music that you are hearing. You know, some of us, our Spotify playlist is stuck on, you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good. And I I know I've revealed how old I am by referencing that song. It's just guilty all the time. No, David says, no, when you confess, you're restored. It's like God's love is an army around you. His nearness gives you boldness. Nearness to God is the source of our ongoing confidence and boldness. See, we, we, we say, I will not hide from God. I will hide in God. And as we confess and receive forgiveness, we become bold. Second, we become more teachable. Look at verses eight and nine. It's written, as if God is now speaking. It's like the voice changes. Notice the change of tone. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or, or they will not come to you. And again, this is like God is speaking now and God is saying, saying to us, it's not your instincts, you know, like the horse or the mule that will guide you. It's not your human nature. It's the instruction of God. And, and so you need to be constantly turning to him and learning from him. And as you do that, you become this person who confesses and you do it consistently and you do it quickly. You're, you're not always fighting against it. See, confessing means you realize your need for guidance and instruction, and it brings you closer to God. You, you become more, more unteachable. I mean, just think about it. What's, what's the kind of person you would rather be around? A person who's always super self-defensive and super self-absorbed? And some of you are thinking, ah, oh, I'm married to that person. <laughs> or would you rather be around the person who just admits their needs freely? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, I, I need to, to deal with that. Of course, we wanna be around that kind of person. So be that kind of person. Confession makes you bold. God's restoration makes you more teachable. Third, you become more secure. Verse 10 says, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. See, how can I be sure and confident uh, uh, and teachable? How can I be sure of this? It's the unfailing love of God, the love that will never fail you the love you'll never receive from your career, never receive from your spouse, never receive from any other human being. It's the unfailing love of God. And you get restored with that as you confess. Finally, you'll become full of joy. Verse 11 says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. See, how do you have that kind of joy, that kind of confidence in your life, that kind of security It only happens when we are deepening our relationship to God. When we are seeing our sin as God sees it and confessing our sin like God calls us to and receiving his forgiveness and receiving his restoration. You know, it's kind of interesting to to ask why and how can David write about something so heavy as guilt? 
with so much hope? And I think the answer is there is another set of three words. Another set of three words that set in distinction from the three words of transgression and sin and iniquity, those heavy words. There are also three hopeful words in this psalm. We are told that God himself will carry and cover and count your sin no more. See, that's the promise of good news that's anticipated in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus carries our sin. As a result of the cross, he covers our sin. And because of the cross and the empty tomb, he no longer counts our sin against us. And we're landing here, we're concluding here because the only true guilt that will ever leave you crippled is the guilt you do not confess to God. It's like being kept in the dark. It just stays frozen, but as soon as you bring it out into the light, it it melts. And so my plea to you today is to confess. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you that needs confession, whatever sin is there in your life, whatever transgression, whatever iniquity, confess it to God. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Stop comparing yourself to different people, looking down on them. Just own it. Just own it. Knowing that the work of Jesus on the cross is so complete that if you confess, and it's no matter what, if you confess, even now, you will be forgiven immediately, completely, and graciously. Jesus is our hiding place. He is, he is the place we find refuge. He is the place we should run to. And so run to him today. Put your faith and your trust in him today. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. If you are not a follower of his, don't bury your sin. Bring your sin to him today. Receive him today. Ask him to enter your life today and become the Lord of your life today and to cleanse you and to forgive you from all your sin. And if you're a Christian and maybe you've been living for a long time with guilt, then bring that to him today. Confess that today. Experience the freedom the restoration, the power and the boldness and the teachability and the security and the joy, all those things that are offered to you in the gospel. That's what God wants us to do with the emotion, the feeling of guilt. Would you bow your heads as we pray? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so as we prepare our hearts Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would not run from you but to you this morning and whatever it is we may be hiding or trying to explain away or to cover up through busyness, I pray that we would come clean today and just be honest, agree with you about our sin and iniquity and transgression. Lord, would you grant us faith to trust you that as we confess to you, you will carry and you will cover and you will count no more our sins. Because of Jesus Christ, Lord, I I pray that everyone right now hearing these words would do what the word of God says, would receive what the word of God promises and would experience the hope and the joy 
that is offered in the word of God. Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk out of here and live our lives in the days ahead, being able to say, I am surrounded by shouts of deliverance, by, by an army of praise, because Jesus is my hiding place and God is near and he forgives. Lord, as we prepare together as your people to celebrate the Lord's Supper, would you take um, these moments and, and would you just amplify these truths that we can be forgiven and we are forgiven in Jesus because of his death, his resurrection on the cross. This is our prayer, Father, and it is in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen.